Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the program, for the hour, we hear again from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and public intellectual Chris Hedges. We'll present excerpts from a talk he gave about his new book, The Greatest Evil is War. His latest book is an unflinching indictment of the horror and obscenity of war. The book looks at the hidden costs of war, what it does to individuals, families, communities, and nations, and shows once again that war not only is a racket, but war is hell. Today on the Project Censored Show, an hour playing excerpts from Chris Hedge's latest talk, The Greatest Evil is War. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the program, we share excerpts of a talk recently given by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges. He recently visited Berkeley, California, and gave a talk that I hosted. Today, we'll play excerpts from that speech, an unflinching indictment of the horrors and obscenity of war. Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who was a foreign correspondent and bureau chief in the Middle East and the Balkans for 15 years for the New York Times. He previously worked overseas for the Dallas Morning News, the Christian Science Monitor, and NPR. Hedges, who holds a Master of Divinity from Harvard University, is author of numerous books and was a National Book Critics Circle finalist for War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Today on the program, we will be playing excerpts from that talk, and listeners are advised that some of the material is, of course, very disturbing. With that, I now give you the talk I hosted with Chris Hedges in Berkeley, California, about his latest book, The Greatest Evil is War. Please give a warm welcome to Chris Hedges. Thank you. Thank you very much. When I finished writing War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning, it was not cathartic. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. There were days when I couldn't write. I would cry all day. It was written out of my own experience as a war correspondent for 20 years. And it's not a memoir. In fact, I was quite uh, deliberate in that every time I brought myself into that book, it was to expose a moral failing. I'd read enough memoirs by war correspondents to see how self-aggrandizing they were, and I didn't want to do that. And then the book, neither I nor the publisher, was a small publisher, thought it would sell. It did. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And then the big publishers, who have dollar signs in their eyes, wanted me to write another book on war, and I refused because I didn't want to dilute what I had done, and also because I didn't want to essentially narrow the focus of my writing to just produce one book on war after another. This book is different. It looks at the experiences of people who come out of war to describe, I think, some of the most salient points of what it is to be in war. One of the chapters I'm going to read is called Corpses. When the bodies come home, it's with a father whose 20-year-old Marine Corps son is killed. Wounds That Never Heal, that's Thomas Young, who was a quadriplegic and then wrote 
Actually, he couldn't hold a pen. He dictated it, and I wrote it out for him to Cheney and Bush before he was going to unhook his feeding tube and die. I'm going to read two small sections of this book. Preemptive war, whether in Iraq or Ukraine, is a war crime. It does not matter if the war is launched on the basis of lies and fabrications, as was the case in Iraq, or because of the breaking of a series of agreements with Russia, including the promise by Washington not to extend NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany, not to deploy thousands of NATO troops in Central and Eastern Europe, and not to meddle in the internal affairs of nations on Russia's border, as well as the refusal to implement the Minsk peace agreement. The invasion of Ukraine would, I expect, never have happened if these promises have been kept. Russia has every right to feel threatened, betrayed, and angry. But to understand is not to condone. The invasion of Ukraine under post-Nuremberg laws is a criminal war of aggression. I know the instrument of war. War is not politics by other means. It is demonic. I spent two decades as a war correspondent in Central America, the Middle East, Africa, and the Balkans, where I covered the wars in Bosnia and Kosovo. I carry within me the ghosts of dozens of those swallowed up in the violence, including my close friend, Reuters correspondent Kurt Schork, who was killed in an ambush in Sierra Leone with another friend, Miguel Gil Moreno de Mora. I know the chaos and disorientation of war, the constant uncertainty and confusion. In a firefight, you are only aware of what is happening a few feet around you. You desperately, and not always successfully, struggle to figure out where the firing is coming from to avoid being hit. I have felt the helplessness and paralyzing fear, which years later descend on me like a freight train in the middle of the night, leaving me wrapped in coils of terror, my heart racing, my body dripping with sweat. I have heard the wails of those convulsed by grief as they clutch the bodies of friends and family, including children. I hear them still. It does not matter the language, Spanish, Arabic, Hebrew, Dinka, Serbo-Croatian, Albanian, Ukrainian, Russian. Death cuts through the linguistic barriers. I know what wounds look like, legs blown off, heads imploded into a bloody, pulpy mass, gaping holes in stomachs, pools of blood, cries of the dying sometimes for their mothers, and the smell, the smell of death, the supreme sacrifice made for flies and maggots. I was beaten by Iraqi and Saudi secret police. I was taken prisoner by the Contras in Nicaragua, who radioed back to their base in Honduras to see if they should kill me. And again in Basra, after the first Gulf War in Iraq, never knowing if I would be executed, under constant guard, and often without food, drinking out of mud puddles. The primary lesson in war is that we, as distinct individuals, do not matter. We become numbers, fodder, objects, Life, once precious and sacred,
becomes meaningless, sacrifice to the insatiable appetite of Mars. No one in wartime is exempt. We were expendable, Eugene Sledge wrote of his experiences as a Marine in the South Pacific in World War II. It was difficult to accept. We come from a nation and a culture that values life and the individual. To find oneself in a situation where your life seems of little value is the ultimate in loneliness. It is a humbling experience. Sledge recalls a young Marine officer who had one ghoulish, obscene tendency of urinating in the mouths of Japanese corpses. The landscape of war is hallucinogenic. Sledge calls it the kaleidoscope of the unreal. It defies comprehension. War, like the Holocaust, as Barbara Foley wrote, is unknowable. Its full dimensions are inaccessible to the ideological framework that we have inherited from the liberal era. You have no concept of time in a firefight, a few minutes, a few hours. War in an instant obliterates homes and communities, all that was once familiar, and leaves behind smoldering ruins and a trauma that you carry for the rest of your life. I have tasted enough of war, enough of my own fear, my body turned to jelly, to know that war is always evil, the purest expression of death, dressed up in patriotic cant about liberty and democracy, and sold to the naive as a ticket to glory, honor, and courage. It is a toxic and seductive elixir. Those who survive, as Kurt Vonnegut wrote, struggle afterwards to reinvent themselves and their universe, which on some level will never make sense again. Walt Whitman, who tended wounded soldiers in hospitals during the Civil War, wrote in a heading in his notebook, the real war will never get in the books. Its interior history will not only never be written, Whitman argues, its practicality, minutia of deeds and passions will never be even suggested. War destroys all systems that sustain and nurture life, familial, economic, cultural, political, environmental, and social. Once war begins, no one, even those nominally in charge of waging war knows what will happen, how the war will develop, how it can drive armies and nations towards suicidal folly. There are no good wars, none. This includes World War II, which has been sanitized and mythologized to celebrate American heroism, purity, and goodness. If truth is the first casualty in war, ambiguity is the second. The bellicose rhetoric embraced and amplified by the American press, demonizing Vladimir Putin and elevating the Ukrainians to the status of demigods, demanding more robust military intervention, along with the crippling sanctions designed to bring down Putin's government, is infantile and dangerous. <clears throat> that, that the inverse version of this conflict is true in the Russian media fuels the insanity. There were no discussions about pacifism in the basements in Sarajevo when we were being hit with hundreds of Serbian 
shells a day and under constant sniper fire. It made sense to defend the city. It made sense to kill or be killed. The Bosnian Serb soldiers in the Drina Valley, Vukovar and Srebrenica had amply demonstrated their capacity for murderous rampages, including the gunning down of hundreds of soldiers and civilians and the wholesale rape of women and girls. But this did not save any of the defenders in Sarajevo from the poison of violence. The sole destroying force that is war. I knew a Bosnian soldier who heard a sound behind a door while patrolling on the outskirts of Sarajevo. He fired a burst from his AK-47 through the door. A delay of a few seconds in combat can mean death. When he opened the door, he found the bloody remains of a 12-year-old girl. His daughter was 12. He never recovered. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Civica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today for the hour, we're sharing excerpts from a talk given by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Chris Hedges. He gave a talk about his recent book, The Greatest Evil is War, on September 26th in Berkeley, California. Now we'll hear some of the discussion I had with Chris Hedges that evening. Thanks so much again for everyone being here this evening for this really important conversation and this really important book. We're going to collect comments and or questions from you all, so please feel free to participate. In the meantime, we're going to have a brief conversation about the book, Chris. Since you said that you hadn't wanted to do another book about war, and it had been quite some time. What brought you back to do this book? Well, the jingoism around Ukraine, which was nauseating, is nauseating, because I know the landscape of war. And there's a deep cynicism in terms of fueling this proxy war, because it's the Ukrainians who will bleed, and the Russians, the families of the Russians. For what? And it's to degrade the Soviet or the Russian military and if possible, remove Putin from office. It goes back to the very cynical strategy Brzezinski employed in Afghanistan to drive the Soviets out by giving, I think, a total of $9 billion, maybe more, where the Saudis were also giving money through the ISI to support the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And so I think the cheerleading that took place for the war in Ukraine, the utter lack of acknowledgement, the, the refusal to acknowledge that we had committed a massive war crime in Iraq, also invading a sovereign country that did not threaten its neighbors, much less us, on a false pretext, on lies. It kind of evoked, you know, those very deep passions that one carries when they come out of a war zone. And this book is different from the first book in that there's not really much about me in there. It's really about the human detritus, detritus might not be the right word, of war, the lifelong wounds and suffering that war leaves behind. So, Chris, when Russia illegally invaded Ukraine, you at the time 
had a program on contact, was on RT America, and part and parcel with wars and proxy wars is controlling the narrative and censoring people who ask questions or bring up historical context. Could you share with us what happened to your program? Right. So my program on contact, I had a program on Telesur. And uh, when the governments in Argentina and other countries which funded Telesur went right wing, they cut off the funding. And so the Telesur program went off the air. RT asked if they could essentially repackage and have the same show. Probably 70% of my interviews are with authors. And I initially said no, and then the head of RT came to Princeton and promised, and they kept their promise, that I would have complete editorial control. It wasn't a show about Russia. It was the same thing with Telesaur. It was a critique of America, American empire, a lot of shows about Julian Assange, who was a friend of mine, about the war crimes, and David Harvey was on, on neoliberalism. And, but what happened was after RT was shut down, then YouTube erased or removed all six years of my archive. Although, again, there was not one show on Russia, and none of my shows violated the supposed guidelines of YouTube. But what it did, of course, was ask the very uncomfortable questions that the state doesn't want asked. We know why they went after RT, and it wasn't because of Russian propaganda. In 2017, the Director of National Intelligence Report was issued 22 pages long. Seven pages were dedicated to RT, and they were quite specific about what they didn't like. And what they didn't like was that we were giving voices to Black Lives Matter activists, anti-fracking activists, third-party candidates, etc. And so that's why they shut it down. I don't own a television, so I knew what my show did. I don't know what was on the rest of the network, but I was certainly against shutting it down because, and I've been in war, I can tell you both sides lie like they breathe, the Russians lie and the Ukrainians lie, but I didn't feel that the public was served by not hearing the Russian narrative. I was in Eastern Europe in 1989. I covered the revolutions in East Germany, Czechoslovakia, and Romania, so I was acutely aware of the promises that had been made to Gorbachev not to expand NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany. We all talked about the peace dividend, which shows you how naive we were. The war industry had no intention of reducing the staggering sums that it loots from the U.S. taxpayer. And NATO, NATO should have been rendered obsolete. I mean, formed to prevent Soviet expansion into Central and Eastern Europe. But none of that came to pass because war is a business. There were billions and billions of dollars to be made by expanding NATO throughout Eastern and Central Europe. After 2014, Ukraine became a de facto NATO country. We know from the WikiLeaks publication of the diplomatic cables that Burns and others were against the expansion of NATO, especially into the Ukraine, because it was essentially baiting Russia into a conflict, which doesn't excuse what Russia did. What they did is a war crime. What they're doing is a war crime. But in the same way that if we want to understand what the rise of fascism, we have to look at the Versailles Treaty. And there are historical antecedents that go into it. So George Kennan, for instance, said that the expansion of NATO into Eastern and Central Europe was the greatest blunder of the post-Cold War era. I mean, I never thought I'd see the day where I agree with Henry Kissinger, who, of course, <laughs> should be locked up. But he's right. Once you open the Pandora's box of war, you never know where it's going to go. I mean, that, the Middle East, the 20 years of 
The debacles in the Middle East should have taught us that. And we're flirting with a nuclear war. I mean, the, you know, all we need is Russia has said that it would strike at arms shipments that are coming into the Ukraine. And, and there's been good reporting, including on CBS, although they took it down. But they did a report that they estimated only 30% of the weapons were actually making it to the Ukrainian army, and the rest were siphoned off by black marketeers and warlords, and God knows where those weapons are going to end up. So you don't know what could happen. So if, for instance, there's a convoy of weapon systems coming in from Poland and, and uh, there's a strike and it's on Polish territory, does that trigger a war with NATO? You don't control the narrative of war once it starts. And that was interesting, that was a point Kissinger made, and he was right. And Kissinger said, you know, there has to be land for peace and negotiations now before it spirals out of control. And that's certainly having spent 20 years of my life in war, that's my concern. So you write in the book a lot about, you mentioned, of course, the military-industrial complex. You mentioned the impetus for war and endless profiteering. You, of course, mentioned uh, George Orwell later in the book at how Oceania is at war with Eurasia and allied with East Asia. The alliance then suddenly reversed. Eurasia becomes an ally of Oceania, and East Asia is the enemy. The point is not who's being fought. The point is maintaining the state of fear and the mass mobilization of the public. War and national security are used to justify the surrender of citizenship, the crushing of dissent, and expanding the powers of states. So the point is to keep the war going, never ending. And the war of terror, not the war on terror, has done that for the past now over 20 years since 9-11. So what do you see as a possible end game? You mentioned, you alluded to the atomic clock, you alluded to the problems of nuclear war. We're closer now than we were even going back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, total annihilation of the entire planet, all living things. The thing that struck me about this book, Chris Hedges, is we haven't really had a book like this that was so powerfully and staunchly anti-war. And so what do you see as, as being the possibilities of getting a very serious, the point is to keep the war going. There doesn't seem to be much of a, of a large anti-war movement here in the U.S. since the beginning of Iraq, and it kind of well, that, dissipated. So, well, it didn't dissipate. It, it decided that it was going to elect Kerry, and therefore it committed collective suicide and never reconstituted itself. You know, the whole Orwell's point was played out in the Middle East. So we want to overthrow Assad in Syria, and then the caliphate and ISIS become strong, so we start bombing them, in essence acting as Assad's air force, and large numbers of Hezbollah were fighting with the Syrians, so in essence Hezbollah's air force. When the Sunni insurgents become threatened to overrun Iraq, Iran sends in all sorts of militias, and they're a de facto ally of the United States in the war against the Sunnis. It, it's all upside down. It doesn't ever make any sense. I mean, Iraq becomes a fractious country, which will probably never be put back together. You know, then we have Libya. So in that sense, it's it, it, permanent war is the goal. And the Ukraine crisis has played quite astutely into that psychosis. In terms of breaking the back of 
the war industry, Toynbee writes about this, but I mean, civilizations die through unchecked militarism. I study classics at Harvard. The late Roman Empire was destroyed by the inability to control the Praetorian Guard and the one million man army that at the end was literally auctioning off the seat of emperor to the highest bidder. So we had a wing of the Democratic Party, Proxmire, Fulbright, others, that at one point would at least question weapon system. Now they just all Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. Uh, they, they're giving more money than they want. So this is why Alexander Berkman called, in World War I, he called the German military the enemy from within. And, and it, the military-industrial complex or the war industry is disemboweling the country. Quite literally, Seymour Melman writes about this, in that our infrastructure is crumbling, we're, they have driven up the debt. Uh, I think, what are we paying? I don't know, $300 million a day. I can't remember. It's, but it, so yeah, we've lost control. It can't even be audited. And like all militarized late empires, it is that military that's going to crush us. What is the solution? Well, at, at this point, given the, the fact that the war industry has captured the media, captured the two major political parties, academia, I mean, I've taught at Princeton, and the robotics department pretty much works for the defense industry. They do all the underwater robotics and get a lot of money for it it really is going to come to mass mobilization. And we're headed for a really rough winter. Food prices and fuel prices is not as bad as Europe. I mean, UK is talking about an 80% rise in energy bills in October. And the unrest, you know, is creating, and the, and the deprivation and the billions of dollars that are being siphoned off to Ukraine is, of course, fuel the rise of this neo-fascism throughout Europe. Now, not just Europe, in the United States as well. And it's very dangerous. In the 1930s, countries in Europe, Italy, Spain, Germany, went one way, we went another. We didn't go. The New Deal was not because of the benevolence of the oligarchy and Franklin Roosevelt. The New Deal was a product of militant strikes. And Roosevelt's private correspondence, he says, he's writing his brother, I've read the letter, he said, if we don't respond, we will have revolution. So Roosevelt was forced, pressured. But that pressure's gone. The oligarchs who run the country have done a pretty effective job since the end of World War II in destroying unions, starting with the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947. Only 10% of the American workforce is unionized. I think it's 6% in the private sector. So the one weapon that we have to essentially punish or curtail the power of the ruling class, which is the strike, has largely been taken from us. And, you know, we've got to regain that militancy. There are signs in food service unions and others that it's there, but that really, I think, is the only hope. Strikes. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. Today, for the hour, we're sharing excerpts from a talk given by Chris Hedges, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author most recently of The Greatest Evil is War, 
Out now from Seven Stories Press, now we'll hear more of my conversation with Chris Hedges. So, Chris, you mentioned Julian Assange before, and someone here want, wants us to, uh, to make the quick announcement on October 8th, the San Francisco Ferry Plaza is a human chain for Julian Assange. I believe you'll be speaking in Washington, D.C. Yeah. October 8th. And, of course, why Assange is so significant, there is this great tendency from the state involving censorship by proxy, too, with the corporate media to shoot the messenger, whether it was Daniel Ellsberg or Gary Webb, whether it's Chelsea Manning, Ed Snowden, Julian Assange helped expose a great number of war crimes, and that seems to be among the biggest crimes one can commit. Can you talk briefly about why Assange's case is so significant for an anti-war movement? First of all, of course, those who committed the war crimes have not been punished. It's only those who exposed those crimes, and in particular Julian, who's innocent. I've covered the trial. I've been to some of the proceedings in London. There were all the others I've followed online. I get up at five in the morning to follow the whole court proceedings, which is judicial farce. I mean, when you look closely at what's happening in the courtroom, it's indefensible. I mean, the, the fact alone that UC Global, the Spanish security firm, videotaped all of his meetings with his attorneys, mm-hmm. eviscerating attorney-client privilege means the case should have been thrown out. That alone. But how can you try an Australian citizen under the U.S. Espionage Act. It doesn't make any sense. The danger, of course, under the Espionage Act, it is illegal to have classified documents. However, journalists have not been prosecuted for holding classified documents and publishing them, as I did when I worked for the New York Times, until Julian. They went after the whistleblowers, and Obama was relentless mm-hmm. in going after the whistleblowers, But not until Trump actually went after Julian did we go after journalists. And that sets a legal precedent. It means that the mere possession of classified material becomes a crime along with the publishing of that material. Now, I should be clear, I did investigative work for the New York Times. And I have friends who still do investigative work for the New York Times. And no one in the government will speak to them because they know they're all being monitored. We're the most photographed, eavesdropped, spied upon population in human history, and I covered the Stasi state in East Germany. So that if you attempt to reach out to a reporter, you're instantly identified and prosecuted. That's why Snowden had to leave the country. And so the only people who essentially allow us to peer into the inner workings of government are those people who leak or hack material. And that is why they're so relentless against those people, Jeremy Hammond, Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, and Assange. And just one other issue on Assange. So when WikiLeaks published this material, they published it in tandem with major news organizations, El Pais, Mm -hmm. The Guardian, Der Spiegel, The New York Times. And the reason was, I worked at The New York Times, they they never liked Julian. In fact, they, they disliked him vehemently. But they knew that if they didn't publish that material, 
they would be exposed as being handmaidens of the elite. And so their hand was forced. But that's why the moment that material was published, they joined the lynch mob that went after Julian. That's why the press has been so awful on this case. You have a chapter in the book riffing on Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky, propaganda model, the concept of worthy and unworthy victims. And one of our attendees asks, why does no one in the American left talk about the 14,000 dead in Donbass, mostly Russians? Well, because of that. We bifurcate the world into worthy and unworthy victims. And I write in the book about, I'm in El Salvador in the early 80s, and there's a Polish priest that is killed by the communist government, and Reagan and the, the media is just hyperventilating over this atrocious murder. Well, we had four churchwomen, Americans, who were raped and murdered by the death squads, and Alexander Haig and Jean Carpatrick essentially blamed them for their own murder, for, blamed them for their murders. So that's a perfect example of worthy and unworthy victims. I mean, I covered Iraq. I was seven years in the Middle East, and celebrities, what's his name, George Clooney, or is that his name? Mm, yeah, I don't watch any yeah. of that crap. <laughs> so, you know, they're all going off to Darfur with Samantha Power. And I, I was in the Sudan. I actually covered the war in the Sudan. I have a great deal of empathy for what's happening in Darfur and in South Sudan. But, of course, they won't go to Iraq. So the victims in Iraq, the victims in Afghanistan, the victims in Syria, the victims in Yemen are unworthy. I think for those of us who lived overseas for so long, that's a particularly hard thing to cope with when we come back, especially having spent, I spent months of my life in Gaza. The Palestinians have been completely forgotten. And the Israeli war crimes, and I've witnessed them. You know, look, the... the, The apartheid system in Israel replicates in every way the apartheid system in South Africa with this difference. As far as I know, the white apartheid regime in South Africa never used attack jets to bomb the townships. It's absolutely inexcusable. And so there's another example of worthy and unworthy victims. So my heart goes out to the Ukrainians, I mean, in a very real way, because I know what war is doing. But what about the Palestinians under Israeli occupation? This question says, at present, the left is doing nothing to oppose U.S. imperialism, or almost nothing. Uh, Some here may, may disagree with that. But the larger point here is the progressive media is parroting the state line. The only critique of the endless wars are coming well, it seems from the far right. How can we begin to oppose the media jingoism and censorship, and what can students do to oppose U.S. imperialism? I mean, the media is a very broad discussion, what's happened to the media. I mean, the media is a different model than it was when Ed Herman and Chomsky wrote Manufacturing Consent, and that you had media conglomerates that largely dominated the media landscape. Now, media... Entities have siloed themselves to cater to a particular demographic. Matt Taibbi wrote a good book called Hate, Inc. on this. On one side of the cover is Sean Hannity and the other is Rachel Maddow. They do the same thing. 
And so it's made it worse in a sense that not only can these demographics no longer communicate, but each side demonizes the other. And that has fueled the kind of antagonism and factionalism that has rent the society apart. I think that in terms of students, I would encourage all students to begin to chain themselves to the doors of the administration until their student debt is... uh... You could easily find 10 students, maybe 15, that cumulatively owe a million dollars of debt. This is obscene. And debt peonage, as any African-American will tell you, is a form of bondage. That's why wages have, in real terms, declined since the 70s. And Biden and no one else has any intention of raising it, because they want to keep you in debt. So in terms of, you know, just a, an immediate reaction on campuses, I, I, I don't understand why students acquiesce to this forced debt peonage, which is really going to ruin their lives, given that there aren't any jobs, certainly that pay. So I feel terrible, and I'd like to see that kind of militancy. I mean, you've got to get Army recruiters off your campuses. Um, they have no right to be there. I have spoken on campuses where the faculty have told me that the recruiters every semester get a list of who is flunked out, and the next day they're knocking on their door. That's just criminal. The recruiters shouldn't be on campus, and, you know, our strength is numbers. If we organize, that is where our strength is. In terms of confronting the war machine, I mean, the entire structure Uh, the the media structure, the academic structure, the political structure, is now completely subservient to the war industry. And I don't have a quick and easy solution because internally there's no opposition and the Democrats are never going to oppose. We have to be clear that on the major issues which have created terrible economic suffering and social suffering, social inequality. There is no difference between the Democrats and the Republicans on trade deals, on wholesale surveillance, on war. So they'll argue over what Freud called the narcissism of minor difference. You know, I don't consider, I consider abortion and a woman's right to obviously control their own body extremely important, but let's be clear, the Democrats had many opportunities to codify Roe v. Wade refused to do so because they very cynically saw it as a weapon to frighten people, in particular women, into voting for the Democrats. And now look what's happened. The Supreme Court is in the hands of extremists. Extremists. So I covered the revolutions in Eastern Europe. I saw what a half a million people day after day can do in Venceslas Square, Alexanderplatz. And I really think that that's what we have to do. I will be in Washington on the 8th. We are surrounding the Department of Justice. I don't expect Merrick Garland to respond, but, you know, that is the one mechanism we have to put pressure on them, and it's the mechanism we have to use. One of our attendees is here all the way from San Diego and says, I share many similarities being a firefighter medic found in your book. How does the rise in symbols, thin red flags and thin blue line flags, parallel with nationalism and perhaps ur-fascism in the U.S.? The thin red line 
connecting to fire departments, the blue line, to police, blue lives matter, these types of, these types of issues overlapping with fascism. Well, we know that within the military and in law enforcement, there's a pretty significant percentage of people who sympathize with the neo-fascists. Um, you know, one of the interesting statistics is that the FBI, when it is conducting surveillance on far-right groups, will no longer share uh, the fact that they are conducting that surveillance with local police enforcement agencies because they find that those groups are immediately informed. Um, so yes, they're there within those entities uh, and, uh, you know, like all totalitarian regimes, they, the, the far right, the proto-fascists, the Christian fascists, whatever you want to call them, seek to build an alliance with the military and law enforcement because those are really the mechanisms by which in power they intend to use to subjugate the rest of us. Do you believe the United States government will meet its objective in Ukraine? And what unintended consequences do you imagine might come to be? They have no objective in Ukraine other than to degrade Russia. We alone have given over $15 billion to Ukraine. But there's no objective. I mean, if you look closely at the war, it's, the front lines are hundreds of miles long. The Russians fall back and the Ukrainians go forward. And this thing just could go on forever. But I think, as I mentioned before, you can never predict how a war is going to go. And one false step, we could see a direct conflict between NATO and Russia. I mean, that would be catastrophic. We're also seeing talks about tactical nukes being used. The show that I recently did with you was coupled with Peter Kuznick from The Untold History, who is a longtime anti-nuclear war activist. And that's been something that he's been extremely alarmed about since the war began. Well, there's a very cavalier attitude, both by the Russians and the, I have a chapter in here called The Pimps of War, dedicated to people like Robert Kagan and <laughs> Elliot Abrams and all these people who are funded by the war industry, lavishly funded by the war industry, and it doesn't matter how many debacles they get us into, pop up in the New York Times and on CNN. Elliot Abrams and others, have, they've really dismissed the possibility of provoking Russia into a nuclear conflict. And I am I'm stunned and terrified, but I know these people. I mean, I had to report on them, and they're nuts. I mean, really, they're not normal people. Um, they're really demented. I knew Robert Kagan. Robert Kagan worked for Abrams when I was in Central America. And all they did, their entire job was to discredit our reporting. That's it. They lied and lied, and it was just appalling. In Nicaragua and El Salvador. And these people never go away because they serve, they are the puppets of the war industry. And their think tanks are lavishly funded, and they get constant media exposure, and they've never been right about anything. I mean, they're the people who got us into the mess in the Middle East. So... It's very hard to counter that narrative. I mean, in the inception of the war in Iraq, I was the Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times. I'm an Arabic speaker. I spent seven years in the Middle East. I was never on because I didn't feed back the narrative that they wanted disseminated to the public. And then they had all these people who couldn't find Iraq on a map. 
going on and talking about Saddam Hussein. I mean, it was really amazing. So you parrot back what they want, they'll give you a platform. I mean, look at who, who are our experts. They're all Brennan and Clapper. Clapper should be in jail. Yeah. Retired generals like Petraeus, and that's the people they turn to. Ex-intelligence, ex-military, who, by the way, are all pulling in staggering sums of money and sitting on the boards of Raytheon and everything else. So it's really corrupt. You're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Recently, I hosted Chris Hedges in Berkeley, California for a talk on his latest book, The Greatest Evil is War. Please be advised, the next section includes extremely graphic descriptions of the bodies of dead Marines. The second part is called Corpses. Jessica Goodell grew up in a middle-class home near Chautauqua Lake in upstate New York. Her father was a lawyer, and her mother worked at home. But her universe fractured when she was 16 and her parents divorced. She could barely continue the motions of everyday existence. She was accepted at Ithaca College her senior year. But just before graduation, a uniformed Marine came to her high school. He told her he had come to find tough men. And what about tough women, she asked. By that afternoon, she was in the Marine recruiting office. She told the recruiter she wanted to be part of a tank crew, but was informed that women were prohibited from operating tanks. She saw a picture of a Marine standing next to a vehicle with a huge hydraulic arm and two smaller forklift arms. She signed up to to be a heavy equipment mechanic, although she knew nothing about heavy equipment. Three years later, while stationed at the Marine Corps Air Ground Combat Center in the desert town of 29 Palms, California, She volunteered to serve in the Marine Corps' first official mortuary affairs unit at El Tagum Air Base in Iraq. Her job for eight months was to process dead Marines, collect and catalog their bodies and personal effects. She put the remains in body bags and placed the bags in metal boxes. Before being shipped to Dover Air Force Base, the boxes were stored often for days in a refrigerated unit known as a reefer. Her unit processed six suicides. The suicide notes, she told me, almost always cited hazing. Marines who were overweight or unable to do the physical training were subjected to withering verbal and physical abuse. They were called fat nasties and shitbags. They were assigned to other Marines as slaves. Many were forced to run until they vomited or to bear crawl, walk on all fours, the length of a football field and back. This would be followed by sets of monkey bending down, grabbing the ankles, crouching like a baseball catcher, and then standing up again, and other exercises that went on until the Marines collapsed. Goodell's unit was sent to collect the bodies of the Marines who killed themselves. We went through everything, she told me. We would get everything that the body had on it, when the Marine died. Everyone had a copy of the rules of engagement in their left breast pocket. You found notes that people had written to each other. You found lists. Lists were common. 
the things they wanted to do when they got home, or food they wanted to eat. The most difficult was pictures. Everyone had a picture of their wife, or their kids, or their family. And then you had the younger kids, who might be 18 years old, and they had prom pictures, or pictures next to what I imagine were their first cars. Everyone had a spoon in their flak jacket. There were pens and trash and wrappers and MRE food. All of it would get sent back to the Marines' homes. We all had the idea that at any point, this could be us on the table. I think Marines thought we went over there to die, and so people wrote letters saying, if I die, I want you to know I love you. I want my car to go to my younger brother, things like that. They carried those letters on their bodies. We had a Marine that we processed, and going through his wallet, we had a picture of a sonogram of a fetus his wife had sent him. And a lot of Marines had tattooed their vital information under an armpit. It was called a meat tag. Some things were not uncommon enough, like a suicide note, she continued. We had a Marine who was in a port john when he blew his face off. We had another Marine who shot himself through the neck. Often they would do it in the corner of a bunker or an abandoned building. We had a couple that did it in the port johns We had to go in and peel and pull off chunks of flesh and brain tissue that had sprayed the walls. We sent the suicide notes home with the bodies. We had the paperwork to do fingerprinting, but we started getting bodies in which there weren't any hands. Or we would get bodies that were just meat. Very quickly, it became irrelevant to have, fingerprinting, to have a fingerprinting page to fill out. By the time we would get a body, it might have been a while, and rigor mortis had already set in. Their hands were usually clenched, as if they were still holding their rifle. We received a call one day that an IED exploded under an army convoy that was crossing a bridge. It had literally shot a seven-ton truck over the side and down into a ravine. We had on our white plastic suits and face masks and our gloves, and I was with a Marine named Pineda. I was coming around the Humvee, and there was a spot on the ground that was a circle. I looked at it, and I thought, well, something must have exploded here or near here. I looked in and saw a boot. Then I noticed the boot had a foot in it. The body of the assistant driver was trapped in the vehicle. All of his body was in the vehicle. We had to crawl in there to get it out. Pineda and I pulled the burnt upper torso from the truck. Then we removed a leg. Some of the remains had to be scooped up by putting our hands together as though we were cupping water. That was very common. A lot of the deaths were from IEDs or explosions. You might have an upper torso, but you needed to scoop the rest of the remains into a body bag. It was very common to have body bags that when you pick them up, they would sink in the middle because they were filled with flesh. She wrote, Our platoon was to the Marines what the Marines are to much of America. We did things that had to be done, but no one wanted to know about it. The other Marines knew what we did, but they did not want to think it could happen to them. We were different from the other Marines. The smell of death permeated our clothes, hair, skin, fingers. Our camis would be stained with blood or with brains. When you scoop up the meat, it would often get on the cuffs of our shirts. You could smell it. 
even after you took off your gloves. We weren't washing our camis every day. Your cuff comes to your face when you eat. We had a constant smell, like rotten meat, which I guess is what it was, since often the bodies had been in the sun and the heat for a long time. The sun does horrible things to dead skin. It makes the skin slide off the body. When the man is lifted, the skin detaches itself from the layer beneath and slides around on itself. We lost two men from our original platoon who said they couldn't or wouldn't do it anymore and left. One would take a box of NyQuil tablets every day and drink as much cold medicine as he could get his hands on, but that only seemed to make matters worse. He had gone out on a particularly difficult convoy to a tank that had been blown up, obliterated except for the tracks, leaving thousands of body parts, fingers and testicles and ears and tiny scraps of tissue to be collected. It was shortly after that when I heard that he was medevaced out. One of our tougher days occurred after a platoon of Marines was on a security patrol. When they finished, they did a head count and realized that two Marines were missing. An investigation charted the route the platoon had followed and we were sent out to find them. At one point, the Marines were walking along the shore of a lake. Navy divers accompanied us, and soon they found the two. By the time they were pulled from the lake, they had been submerged for quite a while. The water made the remains swell. One man was so bloated and misshapen that we had difficulty carrying him properly in the litter. His neck was as wide as his bloated head, and his stomach jutted out like a barrel. His testicles were the size of cantaloupes. His face was white and puffy and thick, not fat, but thick. It was unreal. He looked like a movie prop with thick, gray, waxy skin and the thick, purple lips. We couldn't stop looking at these bodies because they were so out of proportion and so disfigured and because, still, they looked like us. One time, several Marines were killed at once. Our Marines returned to the bunker with seven or eight body bags filled with flesh. We had clean body bags set up so we could sort the flesh. Sometimes things come in with name tags or sometimes one is Hispanic and you could tell who was Hispanic and who was the white guy. We tried separating flesh. It was ridiculous. We would open a body bag and there was nothing but vaporized flesh. There were not four hands or a whole leg in a bag. We tried to distribute the mush evenly throughout the bags. We had the last body bag come in. We opened it up and it was filled with the heads. I looked at four before looking away. Not only did we have to look at them, we had to pick them up and figure out who it belonged to. The eyes were looking back at us. We saw so much throughout the eight months of the program and we managed to get used to a lot of it but the heads worked the other way. They affected us more strongly as time passed. On another night, she and Pineda were assigned to to process a body. He was fully dressed in his camis and his whole body was intact. His hands were lying folded across his stomach. I looked at his chest and saw that it was moving. I spun around and hid. He wasn't dead. He wasn't dead. And I didn't know what to do. The doc said, just wait. Just wait? Wait for what? I asked. 
There's nothing we can do, the doc said. Just wait. People don't wait for this sort of thing, I protested to Pineda. What are we waiting for? What if this Marine was your brother? Would we wait? Pineda and I stood there for a couple of minutes that passed like hours until the young man died. I stormed out of the bunker. I just walked out, which is something Marines cannot do, but I was so angry. And I was just a kid who two or three years earlier had been playing the saxophone in high school band. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today we shared excerpts from a talk given by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges, who was reading from his new book, The Greatest Evil is War. He spoke in Berkeley, California, September 26, 2022. Again, the talk, The Greatest Evil is War. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored Show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Thinkable crimes perpetrated by criminal minds, political ties, habitualized alibis, skies, and other guys, democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars, fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured, paid for by attacks and other